Hey there, my name is Dan. My name is Joshua, and, and we, we are, are the, the Unauthorized, Unauthorized Critics, Critics Circle. Circle. Now, Joshua, tell the listener what we do here at the UCC. With pleasure. Here at the UCC, we review theater with the normal bitcheries and qualms. By watching the video recordings from of questionable origins of various productions. Welcome back to Gypsy Mania, the unauthorized critic circle's first ever event series talking about what many call the greatest American musical of all time. It's one of the greatest American musicals, um, and we're discussing the movies, so are the Ooh. movies that great? We're about A to change find in out. format. That's exciting. We are watching the 1962 motion picture of Gypsy starring Rosalind Russell as Madame Rose. Who the fuck is Jerry? <laughs> <laughs> they don't know that yet. They don't know that yet. Let them figure it out on their own time. We are also talking about the 1993 TV movie starring Bette Midler as our beloved Rose Hovick. You should be able to find these films out there somewhere. Turner Classic Movies, Disney Plus, you can probably find them scattered out around. They're movies. You can get movies pretty easily. Without further ado, please enjoy our discussion of the films of Gypsy. Jerry? What Jerry? Okay, now play the audio clip in three, three two, two, one, one boom. Dipsy-doodle. <laughs> Something in the air that makes you go tipsy-dipsy-doodle. Wait a minute. Is that Tulsa? This is really trippy. I don't know which one's you and which one's the recording. <laughs> it's Tulsa. Why is Tulsa at the train station? Tulsa should have run off with... Oh, little does he know. Something very funny is going on here. I don't like that you're making me re-listen to Russell with Russell's Rose. No shit. <laughs> that was timed perfectly. <laughs> yes. That's really good. Joe. <laughs> Your mama. Jerry. Is the gimmick is that they're each the town they came yeah. from? Yeah. Who are Joe? Who are Jerry? Exactly, Dan. Oh, Natalie Wood's gonna. Oh, Rosalind Russell's gonna read the letter. Okay. Oh God, she's reading it out loud. Fuck me, this scene sucked. Real emotional reading. I started playing online poker. I married Jerry. Oh. Jerry! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! <laughs> she married Tulsa? Why did I just sit through all I needed to be girl <laughs> if she didn't marry Tulsa? Holy shit, Dan. Who is Jerry? Who the fuck is Jerry? <laughs> Why did she marry... <laughs> Dan, this is hilarious. Wait a minute. Well, hold the fuck on. Hold the fuck if honest. 
Just in case listeners are hearing, I need to emphasize that this is a recording I'm listening to of his live reaction. Ah! Who is Jerry? Say hello to the audience, Dan. Hi, audience. <laughs> Did you rewind here? I had to rewind to point something out. Oh my god. Because I started talking over it. Yeah, right. Is it the ghost of Jerry Robbins? <laughs> Oh, what sad music. I have a new cow, a moo cow, a true cow. Ra line. Oh, I'm oh, almost shit. crying. What the fuck? Why do you use that song there as if it's emotional? Someone go wake Lisa Kirk up. <laughs> Rosalind Russell, is it up for this? <laughs> I like the idea that she's just like sleeping in the wings and she has to sing right now, right here, uh -huh. the entire movie's gonna I don't go. know, you were Uncle Jocko and then two minutes later you were the candy guy. It seems like you can't hold down a job. Oh, you still got Herbie. Now you can marry me and I promise you you won't have one single worry for the rest of your life. Rose, don't you want that? Yes, we have a lot of worries. Who the fuck is Jerry? <laughs> <laughs> So, welcome back to the Unauthorized Critic Circle, where we have just listened to a fantastic commentary track from our lovely co-host Dan, listening to the beloved train station sequence. And that was necessary, and... because I texted mm -hmm. Joshua, and I was like, why are we not doing the episode, like, right now? Because I need someone to scream at. This was before that scene, <laughs> and he was like, you should just scream into a recording. And I was like, that's a decent idea. So I unplugged- Thank you, I have many. I unplugged my mic and everything, and, like, unplugged the setup. I was, like, holding the- <gasps> arm that the mic is on just in the middle of the air so I could get the TV in and so I could also talk into it. <laughs> oh my god. What did we do this week? We definitely watched Rosalind Russell's Gypsy. We definitely watched the original 1962 film Gypsy directed by Mervyn Leroy. And we also watched the Gypsy sequel Gypsy 2 The Gypsening. Uh, starring Bette Midler from 1993? 93, yes. Yes. I was not alive, actually. Uh, I'm sorry that you weren't alive. I actually was not alive. I hope you are. Well, neither was I. I hope you are now. Um, that's debatable, depending on who you ask. I, 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 will, I will say this, and not to give an entire episode away right at the beginning, <clears throat> but if you were to ask me after 62 Gypsy if I was alive, I would say no. <laughs> If you were asking me if I were alive after 93 Gypsy, I would say no in the other direction. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so what you're saying is uh, that everything's Dipsy Doodle, right? That was one of the greatest sentences I've ever heard. Everything's coming up Dipsy Doodle. You're the cat's whiskers. We're going to be for the- For me and for you. We're going to be the mashed potatoes, baby. We're going to be the hip and the hop. <laughs> Uh, oh my god. So, where the hell do we start today? I don't know. Do you know where you're going to? Do you like the things that life is showing you? Where okay, are so you going to? Okay, so first of all, to? let's give... Let's see, I'll, I'll ask you, do you have a history lesson as to how 1962's Gypsy came about? Yes. Yes. Please start with so it. So Jack Warner bought the rights for Gypsy. 
And they were like, yep, of course we're going to have Judy and Liza. And then they were like, (laughs) oh, wait a minute. (laughs) No one's insuring Judy. If we can't get Judy insured, (laughs) we can't cast Judy and Liza. (laughs) Oh, fuck. Now what? That's so funny. I'm not joking. No, I, I know, but like, Christ, no one would. No one, no one would insure Judy to do the movie of Gypsy. Uh, Judy went in; she was going to replace Angela Lansbury and Mame on Broadway. No one would insure her. It. She had serious insurance problems later on in her life. So we don't have Judy and Liza. Where do we go from there? Well, Ethel wanted it, but they said. There isn't a screen big enough for Ethel. Well, Ethel is not um, one of the more understated performers on screen. I've actually seen her in movies. You haven't. She's in It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World, right? She's in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, yes. Oh, oh, no. Um, I saw her in what I see her in. Airplane. She was in Airplane. She was in Airplane. She was in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. She was in Call Me Madam. She was Mm. in There's No Business Like Show Business. And she did a lot of movies when she was early in her career. Um, I saw, what was it called? It was her and Eddie Cantor. And it was something like Take Me Pink or Color Me Pink. And she was very young and she was um, very attractive. Oh, you're thinking about Strike Me Pink. Strike Me Pink. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, Uh, it's okay. You would have got it eventually. It was an interesting movie. She was very attractive. And the biggest shocker of the entire movie, you know, these plots can sometimes get a little contrived. The biggest shocker of the entire movie, Ethel Merman sang in head voice. (laughs) She sang in head voice for about two bars of music. Can you imagine? Yeah. And then she lost completely lost any sense of head voice for a good 50 or so years. And then when she showed up on the love boat in the seventies, she had finally kind of found another head voice again, but it wasn't, it was very disconnected from the rest of the voice. So you have her singing mm-hmm. kiss today. Goodbye. And <laughs> wow. Oh my God. Regret. Can't. <laughs> Just these <laughs> <laughs> swoops oh, up boy. into head voice. <laughs> I used to have an Ethel Merman impression, a good Ethel Merman impression. Where'd it go? Uh, puberty hit. Yikes. Been there. Mm, you were there recently. This was a long time ago for me. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Settle down. Now. This was a long time ago for me. I lost my Ethel Merman impression when I was about nine. And if you're wondering why I'm gay, it's because I had an Ethel Merman impression before I was nine years old. That's why you were gay. Yes. That turned you gay. I'm not saying that Ethel Merman yeah. turns people gay, but jury's out. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so they didn't have Judy. Did Ethel, did Ethel Merman get Gypsy? Ethel Merman didn't get it. God damn it. Well, then who else do you get? Roz Russell was a big star. She had uh-huh. done a musical. She won a Tony Award for a musical before. Oh, that's great. What musical was that? Wonderful Town. Uh-huh, and that was a big singing role for her. Well, Leonard Bernstein wrote the score, and he was very inventive writing all three notes she can sing in the score. Oh. Oh, <laughs> oh boy. And Roz Russell was a box office name, so... Yeah, she can do a musical, she's a box office name. I guess we're going with Roz Russell for Gypsy. Did they audition her? Probably not. This definitely seems like... <laughs> 
a role that was given to someone purely based on the assumption that they could do it. She was a major, major star. She was a movie star. She was a Broadway star. She was Roz Russell. You don't know her, well, but... you know, James Corden is also a major star. When are we getting his rose? He's done musicals. He's done movies. He's done movie musicals. When are we getting his rose, huh? Maybe popularity doesn't equate to capability. Well, you're acting like Roz Russell isn't talented. She's not right here. I'm not acting like she's not talented. She's not right no, here, but, but she's no, actually talented. Yeah, but no, but you can... But she's a fine actress here. She's... At times... We'll talk about the movie itself and characterizations and yada da yada da yada da. But she's clearly a good actress. She's clearly extremely competent. She clearly knows how to work a camera. That, that someone being a good actress doesn't mean you just give them Rose. Well, and she had taken on some of the biggest parts ever. She did a movie of Morning Becomes Electra. And that was, if I'm remembering correctly... She, so that's who she should have played. She turned... No. She turned this long <laughs> Eugene O'Neill play into a big Hollywood hit. Of course, she was the first ever anti-Mame. Before Mame was even a musical, it was anti-Mame. And the play starred uh-huh. Roz Russell, and she went on and she did the movie. If you haven't seen the movie, it's an excellent, excellent movie. And shows her at the height of her powers. She can do big roles, but that doesn't mean she's right for every big role. Yeah, which is which is a lesson that we still haven't learned, as with an actor whose name I previously mentioned. Carl Malden? <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's the name I mentioned recently in this podcast. <sighs> so where, um, where do you start? How do you separate the present so, from the past? Look, look, this is the first time we've ever reviewed a movie. We accidentally reviewed a pro shot, and therefore we've talked about one pro shot before. But we've never talked about a movie. No, we We're have making this exception because we gotta be thorough in this. You know, marathon. I I wouldn't mind making the exception every once in a while if it was right. Sure. But Fair this is the first movie, and what a movie to start off with. Oh boy. <laughs> it's um, electrifying. I want to I want to really start with so the director of this movie. What is he what is his name? Mervyn Leroy. Where do we know Mervyn Leroy? Well, you know Mervyn Leroy because he was one of the old dependables at MGM and the old old Hollywood studio system. He did Random mm-hmm. Harvest. He did one of my favorite movies, sure. The Bad Seed. Just sure, sure. you name it, but, he's directed it. But, but, where do we know Mervyn Leroy? Random Harvest. That's where we know Mervyn Leroy? Yes. Mervyn Leroy produced The Wizard of Oz. Produced, yes. He produced the single most influential movie musical in history. He is a good director. He did a lot of old movie musicals. He did, what was that, Boys in Syracuse. He did a lot of the Rodgers and Hart movies when they made the Rodgers and Hart movies into movie musicals. The issue Mervyn Leroy has here is he does not understand that Gypsy is not a Rodgers and Hart musical. And he goes and he directs this like he's still at MGM directing a Rodgers and Hart musical. 
You are so right with that. You're so right. He is not a bad director. He just completely has no idea what he is directing here. I don't know if the statement's completely correct, so correct me if I sort of, you know, fumble or whatever as I'm trying to say this, but this movie was shot like Oklahoma when it needed to be shot like a West Side Story. Mm-mm. That's just so general. What do you mean? This, it, it was shot... In Todd like, Ayo? Like that old... It wasn't in Todd Ayo. <laughs> it was shot like those typical Broadway musical. The way that they used to always transfer Broadway musicals. They'd put you on a soundstage, and they'd shoot you from, like, one angle, really, and just go closer and tighter and more to the left and more to the right. Oh, and... you mean more continuous takes? They didn't cut as often... Yeah, and like and like you could tell that they're like all shooting from exactly the border of the soundstage. You know, like they don't like yeah. there's not really a 360 degree. And of course you have to have like the, you know, the 180 lo- rule. Uh you have the 180 rule of like, you know, your camera can't pass a 180 degree line. Um but like you can tell that they're like their cameras are budging up to the edge of a soundstage that like, you know, the things being painted on. It's like they're shooting exclusively from the fourth wall. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. They have all these like dramatic, romantic close-ups that feel really weird and unnecessary. Like, did you catch those when they were in like the Chinese restaurant and stuff? Every time they went to like a single shot on Roz, it looked like she was being shot like a Hollywood ingenue. Did you get that? It's not Hollywood ingenue. It's just star lighting and typical juicing the camera. It, it stuck out like a sore thumb to me. It made it, her look it like extremely glamorous, which felt that, like a weird choice. To that make. is a decent point. It did not feel weird to me because it's just typical of Hollywood movies of the period. But even of the period, this is what nineteen sixty three. That period is fastly descending, yeah. going away at this point. It does feel it's typical. dying like vaudeville. It's dying like vaudeville. It does feel very typical of a movie in the early fifties. And in my mind, this is somehow a movie in the early fifties. Um, so is this? I accepted is this, is it. Is that there. style right for this? No, not at all. But. The point of her looking glamorous, she had a husband, uh, I forget his name, but he was known as the Lizard of Roz, Freddie Brisson. <laughs> Freddie Brisson was her husband. Uh-huh. Everyone called him the Lizard of Roz. He was um, much like Charles Lowe, who was married to Carol Channing, very protective of the star, wanted to make sure the star was treated like a star, wanted to make sure the star looked good. And also was allegedly gay. Well, who wasn't? I don't know. You're probably better at answering that question than me. Why is that? I don't know. Who isn't gay? Oh, okay. Who isn't gay? You tell me. I don't associate with oh, so people it's ju- Oh, so it's, so it's just because I'm not gay, huh? Is that all I am to you? A not gay person? Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah, okay. I'm, and I have some serious questions about you, but you know this. <laughs> You know this about everybody in your life. We all have questions about you. I don't know the other people in your life, but I know they also have questions about you. 
You have questions yeah. about yourself. You've posed those questions to me. You, you've said, after certain comments you've made... I think we should made, start talking about Gypsy now. After certain comments you've made, <laughs> you have openly admitted, you know, this is probably why people think I'm gay all the time. I said I think we should start talking about Gypsy now. Exactly. That's why people <laughs> think you're gay. You're talking about Gypsy. Okay, so Jesus Christ. Christ, we should start talking about Gypsy now. <laughs> oh my god. Where were we? <laughs> Oh, Roz Russell looks like a star. What did you make of her costume that she wore for Rose's turn? <laughs> it's, hold on. I actually have a fun anecdote. I've shared this with you already, Dan. I was looking this up, and I found that Rosalind Russell's Rose's turn dress had gone up for auction. Uh, it was up for auction in 1997. The estimate was that it was going to go for between 800 and and 1200 US dollars it sold for 460 <laughs> there wasn't as much of a drive for hollywood memorabilia <laughs> classic hollywood memorabilia at the time and gypsy is not exactly classic hollywood yeah. uh and also this rose's turn costume it's just the most unremarkable dress I've ever seen in my life. Well, it's very fashionable for the 60s, so it immediately puts you in the wrong time frame. And beyond that, right. it is completely wrong for the character of Rose, and it is completely wrong for the moment. <laughs> this was Isn't her whole thing supposed to be, like, I can't go to the party not looking like this? She's yes. Dressed She's dressed in, to like, the nines. Red carpet she vest. has a hat with feathers coming out of it. She got the feathered hat for the baby. She's wearing the feathered hat for the baby. <laughs> I just realized that. <laughs> oh my god. So it's just she's dressed to the nines. You can tell this is very much either Roz Russell or her husband saying, "Okay, this is Roz's big number. She might get an Oscar for this. We gotta dress her up as much as possible. She gotta look the best for this scene. Right. And it has nothing to do with the character. Also, uh... A recurring theme. Also, because Roz Russell was not a star who wanted to look bad, um, this Rose has to be, um, nice. They rewrite it to try to make Rose... Yeah. Not a bad person. Which is the wrong move. And also, they rewrite it to make Kirby not a bad person. Like, there are really no bad people here. And they're all nice to each other. And I don't know, the plot just happens. That's a good, that's a fair assessment. It's Meredith Wilson's gypsy. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. Um, um, and, 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 and if we're talking about... Things the movie changed from the musical. Well, let's talk about the leading energy of the changes. You blame sure. Mervyn Leroy. I think the person that does the most damage here is the screenwriter. Who went in yeah. and he yeah. decided, you know, Gypsy, you know what a great book that has? Well, I'm better. And I'm going to show everyone that I'm better because I'm going to find all the plot holes here and I'm going to plug them. I'm going to fill them up. So we're not going to have any plot holes in my gypsy. You can't do that to this story. You don't... He, this is... You're handed a script 
that is practically perfect. You don't need to completely reinvent a universe around Gypsy. Let's talk about some of the changes that he makes to plug up all the plot holes. The very first one, we go to Uncle Jocko's house. Not house, but audition. And who is Uncle Jocko? Herbie Summers. Herbie Summers. All right, so first, Summers. (laughs) Summers. Like, I don't know, long, distant relative of Donna. Who knows? I think so. I can see it. I I see the resemblance. No, because it's Donna Summer, and it's Herbie Summers. And it's also, it's S-O-M-M. Herbie Summers, who is Uncle Jocko, and talks about how much he likes kids and mothers. Yikes. And he gets so incensed that his contest is rigged that he quits, and he joins the candy business. But then he leaves the candy business to go be with Rose. And then, by the everything's coming up Rose's scene, he's like, I can go back to the candy business. No, you can't. You held that job for maybe two months. You were Uncle... (laughs) The the whole idea... barely a business. The whole idea of Herbie being Uncle Jocko is so that then you somehow have plugged up the hole of how Rose gets the boys and how Rose gets the girls. And they add in... (laughs) They add in voiceovers for Roz Russell to explain... They add in... We'll get to those in a second. But let me... A narration... Okay. Let me finish this point first. They add in voiceovers where Roz Russell says, and Herbie go on, went and he did the Uncle Jacko bit again so we could get the kids. Well, that kind of fixes how Rose got the kids, but honestly, it's more fun leaving that to the imagination and having us guess based on who the Rose is and the Rose that we are presented on how Rose got those kids, but they fill that quote-unquote plot hole that isn't really a plot hole, and in doing that, they just create another fucking plot hole of there's no way that Herbie is going back to the candy business. He was objectively bad at the job. He dropped them like a hot potato, like some hot mashed potatoes, and it was not Dipsy Doodle. Talk about the narration. Thanks so much for giving me that opportunity. Thank you. We had a Daisy Doodle old narration track for Rose to give some good old exposition throughout the entire movie. Here's my thing. Gypsy, a musical fable, is based on Gypsy, a memoir. The memoir of Gypsy Rose Lee. If this is a story based from the memoir of Gypsy Rose Lee, and not only is Rose here played like the protagonist, but Rose is dictating the story to the audience, why is it called Gypsy? Like, am am I wrong? No. (laughs) It's so... It's such a thoughtless device. There's no real... I, I will thought through intention. No, no, no. I will tell you the thought through intention. This is, it is a plot hole. I will be the screenwriter for a second. You know, it's a plot hole to have Rose and she's not had a good vocabulary. And all of a sudden she starts singing these Sondheim lyrics and they have all these crazy words in them. So if we add in some crazy words for Rose to say and we introduce the songs in other places then the songs won't feel out of place in the movie oh my god that was a good characterization i'm surprised with myself 
Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised with you as well. <laughs> I didn't think you'd be that good. That was actually pretty good. Fuck you. Fuck you. Carry on. Like, one of the narrations is literally... So everything was coming up roses. Herbie drove us to Seattle. You needed to establish that she used the phrase everything's coming up roses regularly. <laughs> How does that make the song different? You know, every time you're in acting school, one of the first questions, what is different about today? Well, you get to the song everything's coming up roses and apparently nothing is different about today because the script you gave just plugged in a plot hole that didn't exist and said, well, there's nothing different. This is just how she speaks the entire time. Also... They're in the restaurant, and they move... We'll get to this in a second. They move some people. So we're getting the restaurant before some people in the small world scene. And Herbie's talking about, oh, and I even know Mr. Goldstone. And Rose responds, Mr. Goldstone? Well, my personal goal is T.T. Gransinger. So... There we go. Now when Goldstone shows up, everybody knows who he is and knows that he's important to Rose. And the name T.T. So Gransinger. Then T.T. So Gransinger is now a part of the movie. And we know who T.T. Gransinger is. But if Rose now knows who Mr. Goldstone is, why is she jabbering to him like she doesn't when he enters? Honey, you're gonna have to talk up. I can't hear. Very well. <laughs> and scene. <laughs> <laughs> Holy hell. By trying to fix plot holes... They create you them. Make, you make... And they weren't plot holes. They were things that are just fun, open to interpretation. You make exponentially more plot holes. Mm -hmm. You invent plot mm -hmm. holes that were not there. So... Well, no, I mentioned it. We should get into it now. They move some people. The first full song you get in this show, outside of, like, you know, obviously... Funny, you're a stranger who's come here. What a come slow from fucking beginning to Gypsy. Town. Funny, I'm a stranger myself here. Small world, isn't it? And of course, and of course, they literally... They literally start the first full song of Gypsy off on, pr I think, the lowest note that is sung in the entire movie. Like, that's the first note we hear. We hear, funny. funny. Like, that's, you're, you're hearing something in the second octave. who's come here. Come oh my god. From Thank you for waiting for me to wake back up before continuing. I appreciate it a lot. <laughs> we should also now is a good time to mention they do dub Roz Russell. And they They do with Lisa Kirk. Who is an excellent vocalist in her own right. But Roz Russell was not going to be dubbed. She was convinced she was going to sing the entire score. So, she recorded the entire <laughs> score in her keys, and Lisa Kirk then had to do a passable Roz Russell impression in Roz Russell's keys. And the famous story about the Roz Russell unedited recording tracks... I love this story from the bottom of my heart. Julie Stein 
knew that Ethel Merman was upset that she did not get the movie. <laughs> so Julie Stein, as a Christmas gift, couldn't have been a Hanukkah gift because everybody knows that Ethel Merman is not Jewish. She'll tell you We've to talked her about face. this. Keep up. I think I edited it out, but Ethel Merman oh, was damn. staunchly. She was not anti-Jewish. She knew she needed Jews for she her career. She was anti-people thinking she was she anti. Was she thinking, yep, exactly. You said it better than I could. <laughs> So anyway, he as a Christmas gift one year, he gave her a record of all of Roz Russell's unedited tracks of her singing the Gypsy score, and at every pretty much every single Ethel Merman party, she blasted every it. Party. She blasted it as loud as she could and started screaming, laughing, and talking about listen to how bad she is. What the fuck did she think she was doing? We hear um Roz Russell sing uh, in two songs, both those being Mr. Goldstone, I Love You, uh, and The Small World Reprise, both of which were recorded live on set. So, uh, you know, big inspiration for Tom Hooper, this Gypsy movie. Well, no, no, no. Roz Russell is in other places. If you listen to Rose's Churn, it's Roz Russell up until I had a dream, Ooh, yeah. and then Lisa Kirk yes. comes in. You know, we should give the movie credit for what it does well. Credit where credit is due. This movie does some things very well. And I would like to mention something that I thought was excellent about this movie. Which was the set for T.T. Gransinger's office. What a great set. That is the best set I have seen for T.T. Gransinger's office. Here's something I haven't mentioned. I don't know how I haven't mentioned it. But I gotta come clean with you, Dan. This movie, this was my introduction to Gypsy. It was my introduction to Gypsy too. I caught this on Turner Classic Movies in like 2018 or 2019. And I watched it and I thought, wow, Gypsy's a great story. And I really loved it. And for a while, this you're, you're going to die at this one. This is the record I had for this show. I went out of my what? way to try to find the film record because it what? was the one I saw. What? <laughs> yeah. yeah. What? Yeah. Can you believe? I went out of my way. I found it in Montreal. I found it in Montreal and I was elated that I'd found it. <laughs> and he's left the call. I don't know why he's... Hold on. Well, wait. I don't know why you left. I'm the one who paid money for it. You sought it out. That's why I left. <laughs> that speaks to your taste level in my defense this was the first time i had experienced gypsy it was on tv Same. i had recorded it and that was about i don't know maybe 2005 i was extremely okay, so young it's the same it's the same story just like more than a decade apart no it is not the same story because in 2018 you were how old 17 you were old enough to know better how old were you? I don't remember the specific year when I saw it, but I was... You said 2005. How old were you in 2005? One doesn't remember such things, but... How old were you in 2005? I don't know. Okay? Let's How is on. that possible? How can that possibly be true? Because I have lied about my age so many times that I forgot myself. Okay? Is that the Who answer you, you want? I don't remember how old I was in 2005. 
How long has that been going on? No, that doesn't Did that work, work there. there. No. Okay. No. Well, you know what? I tried. I tried, and that's you got to give me at least that. I guess you tried, but sometimes you need to try harder. So, so, so basically, what I'm trying to say is, I I've seen this movie. I saw this movie once before, three years ago, and I remembered s- bits and pieces. There were like flashes in my mind, and one of those things was the set for T.T. Grant Singer's office. Because, wow, that was actually gorgeous. That's one of the frames of the movie that I had seared into my mind from the first time watching it. Great set. genuinely gorgeous set. But that set isn't the only thing to like here. There's other things this movie does well, like, um... Like... There's... This is the cutest fucking lamb I've ever seen in my life. Yes, yes. This is an adorable, adorable lamb. Just a perfect lamb. The perfect lamb. I don't know where they got this lamb, but this is a gorgeous lamb. This is a show lamb. I hope this lamb won a blue ribbon or something. I hope they have a lamb Oscars because this lamb deserves an Oscar. I actually haven't thinking about this lamb. It is, I, I nearly squealed when I saw it. It's like, the animals in this movie are incredible, save for that poor, poor, poor Chowsy, who is at all times trying to furiously sprint away from Roz during Small World. (laughs) Go back and watch it. He's trying so hard. It's hilarious. The lamb is gorgeous. Um, Right. I'm I'm, I'm sorry for interrupting you, Dan. You were about to say what what you really liked about the movie. Oh. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... Well, um, yeah, go ahead. There's about a half hour of the movie in the second act where Roz Russell doesn't have to sing. So, oh, you actually, (laughs) you can, (laughs) I was surprised you actually came up with something. You can kind of like actually start to enjoy her characterization for a little bit. And also another good thing about the movie, when they get into the second act, um, well, you know, I fixed all the plot holes and that was what I was there to do. And so then once I fixed all the plot holes, um, well, my energy pill wore out, you know, we're all on these uppers and downers. I didn't really have time to rewrite act two, but all the plot holes were in Act One, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> it, it, he just sort of let it be. The rewrites. He's like, oh, I got tired by this point. Yeah, yeah. The rewrites kind of stop in Act Two. I mean, they obsessively have to get rid of any obscenity, and they... yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes for a very, very interesting scene. In Are you ready for this? The Wichita Opera House, which is now the official canon name of the House of Burlesque. You, I you get the fuck out of that canon. You get out of that canon. I hate it. I hate it so much, Dan. You can't understand how much I hate it. Uh, We can put this movie in a canon, and then we're shooting it to the fucking moon. Nothing about this movie (laughs) is canon. (laughs) Wichita Opera House. Why would it be called that? Why? No, but like, actually, you're right. Like, what the? What kind of opera house? Is that supposed to be some kind of like speakeasy, like cover name? Like, when a new owner bought the theater, they didn't change the name. Wichita's one and only burlesque theater was the line in the show. So, the only burlesque theater in Wichita is the Opera House.
No, and also, just look at the way the theater is built. That's not at all remotely built like anything that could have ever in its life been an opera house. Mm-mm, yeah, no, not at all. Not even like a small regional opera house. Mm-mm. That's just, that's like, it's built like a church. You know, there is something that is good about this movie. Now that we are at the House of Burlesque. Sure. Faith Dane. That's exactly what I was going to say, too. Faith Dane is the best performer in this movie, arguably. And why is that, Dan? She's really the only lengthy speaking singing role who played the role on Broadway. Now, Faith... She's the only character who... She's the only actress who played that character on Broadway, rather than the ensemble. Mm Mm-hmm. Faith Dane, also, she plays Mazeppa with the trumpet. So we've actually heard her before. We've heard her in our first episode with Merman. Yes, and Faith Dane walked in to audition for Gypsy, and she had the trumpet, and she had the strip act. That was her act. They didn't know that Mazeppa had a trumpet until Faith Dane walked in the room. You know, we only lost her uh, last year. Was she really with us all that way? 96. Hmm. Sandra Church is still with us. You know who isn't with us? Uh, Who's that? Natalie Wood. Right. Natalie Wood is not with us, and you want to tell the audience why? Why? I'm not sure. You don't know? No. Oh my god, you don't know? I don't think I do. This is all alleged. I cannot confirm anything. Um... Uh So she drowned on a private boat, and the rumor was she walked in on her husband, Robert Wagner. She was married to Robert Wagner. The rumor is she walked in on Robert Wagner having an affair, and she went up on the top deck of the boat, and she was screaming, and she was very upset that Robert Wagner was having an affair, and he reportedly pushed her overboard. And it has been years, and it is one of the biggest scandals in Hollywood history. And everyone said that the the official report of the time was that she drowned completely on her own accord. But the rumors for years and years were that her husband pushed her. Wow. So, Natalie Wood isn't with us. It was an untimely death. She was only, what, in her 40s? And she was supposed to do, I believe, Private Lives, the Noel Coward play, in L.A. Like, a month after she died. Um, Yikes. This was a career that was going to go on, and she was going to figure out other things to do with her life. So, I don't want to disparage someone who died so untimely, but I do have to say, this little lamb was a lot of mutton. Barely grilled. Barely grilled. Where was Marnie Nixon when you needed her? We had Jerry, but we had no Marnie Nixon. Where the (laughs) fuck was Marnie? Who the fuck is Jerry? (laughs) Oh my god. Oh god. So, Natalie Wood can't sing this. She's... She can't sing this. She's fine otherwise. What really doesn't work is Natalie Wood saying... I'm a pretty girl, mama. No shit, shit. honey. You've been Natalie (laughs) Wood the entire time. Everybody knows you're pretty. I don't know why Roz Russell didn't see it, but in case you didn't notice, you're Natalie Wood. What'd you think of Natalie Wood? Just fine. You know, I find it interesting that 
the screenwriter added all the lines he wanted to in the world. Um, the strip is completely <laughs> silent. A, a, there is not a single spoken four, word in the strip. There are four words used in that entire entire strip segment. Those four words are let me entertain you. She sings it again later on. Like, that's it. Can we talk about all the edits in this part? Because I also, not even you go anything to related to... Yeah, yeah, nothing related to any vulgarity, but still takes place in the thing. You go to hell, just switched out with you go to the devil. <laughs> they couldn't say hell in 1962? Well, also, there ain't no vaudeville anymore where you've been in vaudeville. In... The Louvre? The Louvre because... The Louvre? Because if you have a stripper saying the Vatican, it is possible that the Catholic Legion will come after you and they yeah. will say, no, we are not going to see this movie. They can ban your yeah. movie for all of those fucking Catholics in the country. And then, yeah, we that's... all know how well, uh, we all, <laughs> we all know how well the life of Brian went. Yeah. Um, why don't we talk about Carl Malden? I, I think we're done with specific notes. I, like, is it just me, or is this, like, the most angry, intense Herbie we've ever seen? This guy's got the fury of a thousand suns in him at all times. But not in the right places. N like, no. He, wa doesn't he, like, walk out on Rose during You'll Never Get Away From Me? Like, what the fuck? Pretty much. I was literally watching this gypsy going, like, why ha- Point blank asking, why hasn't Herbie left yet? Um, well, he says at the beginning, he likes children, he likes mothers, he's a nice yeah, he guy. he always says that. But but in every single other version, the difference is, you can understand why he stays. Well, because... Do you genuinely understand why he stays here? Because Roz Russell... As much as any other Herbie? Because Roz Russell is not a monster like the others. And not to say that the others are particularly monstrous, but all of the roses that we've seen, I think Roz Russell is the most agreeable if you had to spend time with them in person. Maybe, sure, but, like, he's someone who doesn't seem to want to put up with her, like, at all. Well, but when he get, gets... Did you not get that impression? When he gets angry with her, what is it really about? What it's really about is... Trimming all of Rose's edges to make Rose a nicer person and keep Rose in line with just regular dull people. He's running off after her. If mom was married, that scene right before he's running yeah. off and he says, I'm going to go read her the riot act. Well, why? Because she's going after Grant Singer, and that doesn't look for good for Roz Russell. So Carl Malden is there to balance Roz Russell and make Roz Russell look good. And I think unintentionally, that's why he comes off bad so many times, because they are so worried about making Roz Russell look bad. Huh. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm, I, I get what you're saying. I don't think he was... I think he's one of the nicer Herbies, actually. But he has little patience for Rose, and that just happens to be when Rose has to make some actions that aren't agreeable to a normal audience. And it's uh -huh. all in service of, well, they have deep, long conversations at night, and they're just like you and me here in the 1950s, again, because this movie is happening in the early 50s in my head. We, we are here in the <laughs> early 1950s. We don't have a TV, but we sit by the radio and we talk. Okay. And we get along. 
and we leave the door unlocked and 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 overall it's a fine performance i don't think it's much of a performance this just seems like carl malden being carl malden (laughs) really yes having seen carl malden and probably more movies than i honestly can remember it's not one of carl malden's better acting performances it does seem carl malden being the most quintessential carl malden he, he was. I thought it was a, a fine performance. I I enjoyed it, but like, really, really stark at times. You want to see? Did he sing at all? Um, I don't think he did. Because I know, because you know, obviously he had his verse cut, and you'll never get away from me. I just couldn't remember if he sang. Well, there's in no together wherever we go. Does he? I can't remember if yeah. he sings in Small World. I'll take a quick look. Yeah, go ahead. No, he doesn't. He doesn't sing at all in this movie. Well, he doesn't sing at all in this movie. That's not the best idea. Herbie should sing something. Yeah. So where does that leave us? So I I feel like this is a topic that we've both been like outright skirting. But seeing as it's an integral part of this marathon, we have to address this. Every production of Gypsy, we walk away with a thesis for our rose. <laughs> Dan? Yeah. Go ahead. Roz Russell is a star. That's your theory for this gypsy? For this Rose, I don't see necessarily Rose. I do see Roz Russell as a star. I buy that. I buy that. I have... Here's my thing. I got nothing, kids. Look, she's not bad, but I got nothing. A lot of what she's doing has nothing to do with the character. This is a movie that has Rose honestly and earnestly say and i quote my sense of motherhood comes first oh boy i yield the floor that was a great impression by the way not of ross russell but (laughs) of something (laughs) of something i don't think there's a consistency that i could play I could try to reach into it in just whatever way I could, but any real thesis I have ends up being, like, completely contradictory. There's no real consistent through line here, and it's just down to the fact that there was not a planned, coordinated arc for this rose. There just was not one from the outset, and to pretend there was one, or to invent one would be completely antithetical of this movie's existence. I think there is a re- there's a specific reason that there is not an arc. This movie, or Roz Russell, I don't know who, I don't know who to place the blame on, but this movie is not interested in presenting us Rose. They had the rights for Gypsy, they ended up with Roz Russell in Gypsy, and for some reason the people on that set decided that they did not actually want to deal with the main character in the piece. And yet they give her the narration! Yet they they frame her as the absolute dead center of the story! Because it's Roz Russell and she's a big name! She's a star! (sighs) This is exhausting. There are a couple dialogue scenes that Roz Russell is good at. That's about it. It's nuts that we're talking about a Rose in that way. There's a couple scenes where I think she's fine. She's a fine actress. It's nuts to be talking about a Rose Hovig like that. Yep. 
And this movie received historically glowing reviews, especially around the time of its release. People were hailing I this as, I really like, hate to say it because it sounds so, so much. It sounds so, um, hyperbolic. But you watch this and you realize why movie musicals died off. And I'm not saying that this movie musical was the death of movie musicals, but Gypsy, as a musical, and even as a musical comedy, is getting shades of darkness and is living in certain gray areas, and it goes off to Hollywood, and what do they do? They treat it as if the musical has not changed in the slightest bit since when... Larry Hart and uh, Dick Rogers were writing them one show after another. And that is why the musical fell out of... I think that's why the movie musical fell out of favor with the audience. Because... A lot of people, uh, a lot of people attribute that to um, Hello, Dolly as well. Hello, Dolly is a decent... is a different can of worms. But these mm-hmm. shows started changing... And the movies were not able to change at the rate the shows that. were changing. Yeah, they weren't able to reflect the evolution so of theater. you get these movies that they're taking these shows, and rather than finding the best way to film the material, they're just shoving them through an old lens that the audience is familiar with. Which is just the wrong way. Not just the wrong way to do Gypsy but the wrong way to do musical theater on camera. Yes. At least anymore. Do you have any closing thoughts? I have a transitional thought. You can, If you have a closing thought, you can be out with it. I do have a closing thought. Hit me with it. <laughs> Who the fuck is Jerry? Who is Jerry? If you are listening to this and you know the identity of Jerry, no joke, full honesty, 100% will carry this out. $30 Canadian. I was about to say Canadian or American. Canadian. I'm not stooping to their level. They'll accommodate to me. If It's free money, Dan. If you know the whereabouts, have you seen Jerry? Have you seen Jerry? Now, what's your Please transitional thought? I was just so damn exhausted after watching this. I'm yep. not going to lie. I don't know if I can attribute this to the movie or to anything else maybe happening in my day. But I just had s- such a headache after watching this. Like, such a headache. And I knew I was going to have to get into, okay, well, I got a whole other one to watch today. And I was like, I'll just give myself a break. And then I guess I'll go back into this and I'll try to wipe my mind clean. And so I took a little break, and then I popped on 1993's Gypsy television movie starring Bette Midler. And it just lifted my spirits so incredibly. I would so recommend watching the movie and then watching the TV movie in immediate succession. Because it's like you're watching the best film ever made. Yes. At least in comparison. Yes. It is so fucking refreshing to see Gypsy on camera done 
pretty much the way you do Gypsy on camera. 1993's Gypsy is pretty much the formula for doing this show on camera. In my eyes, at least. Do you have an opposing thought, Dan? How you do Gypsy on camera. First, Gypsy is so theatrical. Does Gypsy even belong on camera? I'm not 100% sure. Here's what I have to say about the 1993 TV movie. This was the third time I had seen it. The first time, I really did not like it. The second time, I had kind of been able to see what the limitations were and was able to accept it for what it was. Watching it less than 24 hours after seeing the Roz Russell movie, <laughs> this was The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. <laughs> my god was this fantastic after the Ross Russell movie it felt like such a good watch like really it did I had a such an excellent genuinely excellent time watching this now do we want to go into the history a little bit please do 1985 rolls around Barbara has as everyone was expecting it to Barbara has made her Broadway album the Broadway album is very successful, and they decide they should do Gypsy on TV, and Barbara should do it with Madonna. Oh. Mm-hmm. How old was Madonna at this point? Uh, that would have been right at the beginning of Madonna's career. Huh. Madonna was a brand new uh. pop star, but they should they wanted to do Gypsy on TV with Barbara and Madonna, and I believe Barbara wouldn't commit. And a few years huh. went by, and then... Either Stephen Sondheim or Arthur Lawrence decided they were fine with Barbara, they were fine with Liza, they were fine with Bette Midler, but they wanted a year-long commitment of someone playing the role on the stage before they got the TV rights. No one was willing to do it. And that's when Tyne Daly came in and said, I'll do the role. This sounds great. She had been on Cagney and Lacey for years and years, and she was done with her procedural life and she wanted a new career and this was going to give her a new career now reportedly i don't know how this happened but reportedly the head of cbs got a call from a producer who said i have the rights to gypsy and i have bet midler and my next my next call is to nbc in five minutes <laughs> Oh, boy. Tyne Daly could not have been more furious because Gypsy was her show. She had done the role on, for, on stage for a year, which is what other people were asking for. Also, Cagney and Lacey was on CBS. It was ouch her show on her ouch. network. And that fucking stings it's bet midler and years later she said the executive said that was the call i have gypsy i have bet midler my next call is to see in nbc in five minutes and he said what would you have done and she said and then i could understand it well really what uh, you can't understand tyne though and what you didn't point out where the fuck is arthur lawrence in all of this Good question. Arthur Lawrence had to sign over the rights that he was not going to give to Bette Midler several years before. He, at some point, signed off on Bette Midler's casting, signed off, gave the producers the rights, and when he signed off, the 
stipulation he made was that they would do the show. They would not make any script changes. They would do the show exactly as Arthur Lawrence had written it. And? And we have Bette Midler. Did we end up getting this? We have, Yeah, we have Bette Midler and Gypsy. We watched it. And I think that's just great that we have Bette Midler and Gypsy. I do too. So where do you want to start? I, you know, I actually kind of, I think, before we talk about any of this, I think we have to talk about the director. We should talk about Emil Ardolino. Okay. Emil Ardolino directed Dirty Dancing, and he also directed Sister Act. He was mm-hmm. known for making movie musicals, and one of the first shows he saw as a kid was Ethel Merman in Gypsy. And this was his dream project. So they started. They started shooting. They shot the film in sequence. Why is that? I believe the reasoning at the time was that Bette Midler needed to work up to Rose's turn. And it makes sense to film, especially if the Rose has not done it on stage. There are so many different strings and pieces you have to pull together to get a full Rose. Uh, and if you shoot out of sequence and you've never played it on stage, you just don't have a prayer. You really don't have Where a prayer. Where would we have seen that? I don't know. You don't know? I choose not to know. Hmm. I feel like there's a movie that was produced 30 years earlier that could have maybe spoken to this. But that's just me. Hey, you're just talking dipsy doodle. <laughs> so Emil Ardolino starts shooting the movie. And, allegedly, he got very sick. He had HIV-AIDS. And, reportedly, the movie was finished off by assistance. And he died the week the movie premiered on TV. Three weeks before. Three. He died three weeks before the movie premiered. He never got to see it air on TV. So... The movie is pretty much directorless for probably half of the movie. And it's such a shame to say this, especially based on how extremely strong pretty much all of the first half of this movie is. But as this happens, you can tell. You can tell exactly where he gets sick. You can tell exactly to the moment. It. It's it's all I need is the girl. Yeah. Yeah. Well, really, I think it's... There's one moment I hate here. They put a complete blackout at the end of Goldstone. I don't know if there was a commercial break there initially. My gut is telling me there was a commercial break. They come back and they have Little Lamb, which goes against the very pacing of the actual show. And you can tell he's kind of rehearsed everything up until the end of act one or at least was able to rehearse i think they had rehearsed the full show before they started filming but he was able to rehearse to some completion until the end of act one but he definitely got started getting sick for all i need is the girl and he's pretty much gone by act two it feels like that i don't have that on complete authority um i do know there were a lot of people there for rose's turn and no one was really willing to be the person to go up and give Bette Midler notes. Like, you know, Bette, Bette Midler's performance 
isn't the biggest like thing that gives that away. I don't think it's really as fluent as it had been throughout, especially the entirety of the first act. I think there there are moments I can point to where you see consistency sort of start to wane a little bit, but it really comes through a lot in everything. It comes through in especially cinematography, and it comes through in a lot of just the general performance choices and in, in the sort of occasionally aimless direction that many of the actors seem to inhabit. It just, it becomes more and more average as it goes on, which is heartbreaking for something that starts off so excellently. Well, it so starts off excellent. so sure-handed. It starts off, um... Starts off as the best production of Gypsy you've probably seen. Maybe. And in terms of in terms of an all around, yeah. Bette Midler, really for the first three or four scenes, nails every bit of comedy. You think she's about to be the best Rose ever, and slowly, she still she always has the right instincts, but slowly, you can kind of see she's a little directionless. And I don't mean yeah. that as in the director wasn't there. I mean, this is a rose that doesn't really know where she's going. And some of that I do think is a character choice Bet made. But some of that is also there's no one feeding her ideas. There's no one for her to bounce off of. It's a, it's a real It's a real genuine shame. This is a gypsy that was on its way to winning the argument of this is actually a piece of theater that could benefit from being put on camera. Maybe not not necessarily to say, like, it would be better on camera or it's, you know, it's somehow even more superb than ever. But it's something that really, at very much, at least in the beginning, benefits from being on camera. There are a lot of shots and a lot of jokes and a lot of very clever cinematography that makes moments that really would only work on stage work brilliantly on camera mm -hmm. work as well as they ever have there is love and respect for gypsy demonstrated here and it's being translated to camera extremely effectively what did you think overall i think ultimately this is a gypsy that you can show someone as their introduction to the material and be in safe hands i really think that you know, I had my issues with it the first time I saw it. Watching it now, um, for this, specifically in the context of this podcast and us having been on the journey we have been on. Yeah. I thought it was really solid, even with the issues so I have. I thought overall, one hell of a production, one hell of a TV movie. It's funny that... Whereas you would have watched it standalone before, seeing it in juxtaposition to every single other production has actually improved it. I think what it is, is I was critiquing it based on preconceived notions and stereotypes I had of the show Gypsy that weren't based in what the show actually is. And so now, having seen time and time again exactly what the show is, I'm able to better appreciate 
what it does well and what it gets right and not fault it for things that were truth in my head but not truth in the real world mm-hmm well said so do you want to start talking about the nuts and bolts of this uh why not perfect where would you like to start i don't know you start okay <laughs> you know what i i tell me if you don't want to go with this but i think it'd be fun if we went in like sort of like the reverse order that we went with the movie and talked first about uh rosa's thesis okay what do, do you i'm gonna do you have a thesis i want you to go first there I think the operative line for this rose is you looked like a pioneer woman without a frontier. And I think hmm. this is a rose who is aware that she is a pioneer woman without a frontier and is constantly searching for that new frontier. That's a re- that's a good thesis. Ela- well, go ahead elaborate on that. Elaborate, please. Her actions and her reactions are based on what is the mountain I am now climbing? What is my goal? T.T. Gransinger was a goal, and she realized this is not a frontier I am going to conquer, so I am going to reject it. She goes to offer up Louise to strip, and it has nothing to do with Louise, and it has nothing to do with stripping, But look, this is a brand new frontier for me. This is a brand new world. This is something that is completely unexpected that I know nothing about. And isn't that fun? Huh. Yeah. This is a rose that gets ideas in her head. They're not always based in reality. But she goes out Hmm. to conquer those ideas. And she loves when she is unsure and she is flapping her wings and sometimes she even thinks she's flying ultimately this rose the one frontier she cannot conquer is herself which ties very nicely into my thesis uh which starts with the fact that this rose is so cripplingly insecure that it hurts she yes like really Just before she sings, you'll never get away from me in the Chinese restaurant. She has this one moment of sincerity where you swear she's like about to cry. She's so genuinely nervous for a moment that Herbie's about to walk out on her. But she's so quick to pick up that facade and put it back on and mask herself with it again. Hmm. And I say it's a facade because I see it pop up again later. Because this is also the single most level-headed, self-assured Rose we've had during the moment in which she's giving her don't-be-like-June monologue. She delivers that monologue to Louise like it is a rousing anthem. It's like it's like a, a oh-captain-my-captain kind of speech. Like, it is intense leadership and coolness. Not the don't-be-like-June, but more of the you-can-walk-out-when-they-want-you. But you can't walk yes. out. Yeah. It's not... You can't walk out, you you can't lose, it's you can't lose. It's like you can't do this to yourself. She's like really persuading her, and she has this confident, incredible air to her. And then she takes Rose in, and you see her face. And she's in the hug for about two seconds, and in those two seconds, you see that she is actively 
jumping off that ledge and onto the next one. She has burned every single inch of oil in her and she is furiously looking around the room for what to plan next. And as soon as she leaves the hug, she has it. But she is going on a wing and a prayer. She is completely making this up. She is completely inventing this in real time. And you can see this facade of confidence leave her the second that no one is looking at her face. Well, and that's interesting her, because her... one of the messages I sent you, I found her uh, small world reprise to be really effective. And of course, yeah. there's no one around her at that point. She's completely by herself. She Yeah, the, the choke up she had on uh, Funny I'm a Woman with Children, mm -hmm. that line, the choke up she had was the single... Mo it, it's the most the choke up has ever surprised me in one of these yeah it's really well done really well done mm -hmm. and yeah it's just mind-blowing and there are moments in that where i think you know it's it's a shame that i think the the argument between rose and herbie and this is probably the worst part of this movie technically in terms of cinematography in terms of editing in terms of consistency of performances mm -hmm. it this is really one of the low moments of the film technically but Bette Midler, I, I feel, is so strong that even though she's not totally with this characterization as I as I really see it, like she sort of drops out of Rose and just sort of assumes the lover's having a spat kind of, you know, thing. She plays, like, confident and she plays sure and she's sure of herself, but it's not really Rose. She's not really embodying Rose. She's sort of, but it just feels like she sort of becomes more Bette than Rose in that moment. Well, um, and it's interesting, that very fight. The way Peter Riegert says, nothing can kill you. That feels like method acting. That felt like it had everything to do with Peter Riegert and Bette Midler's history together. And it works for Herbie and Rose, but it really has nothing to do with Herbie and Rose. So uh, a, a history together, you say, between Peter and playing Herbie They were together for years. Rose. They were in a, back in the seventies, yeah. Yes, they were in a romantic relationship for years and years. Makes a lot of sense how he got this role now. <sighs> I'm not. You didn't like him. I didn't like Peter Riegert as Herbie. I'm ambivalent. I don't mm -hmm. think he was bad. I don't think he's a Herbie I'm going to particularly remember. I think he was doing all right. He was passing the course up till. You know, that moment where it tells, like, the director drops out. And then we lose him completely in the alley scene, where all of a sudden, he's fucking Kevin Costner in The Untouchables. He he takes on this really weird direction of, like, this stone-cold Herbie, who's, like, so jaded, and I don't get it. Well, to me, it didn't feel stone-cold. It felt, to me, like Herbie is putting on some kind of mob mafioso, you're not going to leave the act. You leave the act one way, and that's both <laughs> legs broken. That kind of energy. <laughs> like, he knows exactly uh, where. And it's not the wrong impulse, but it needed finessing that it didn't get. I'm going to treat you to an ice cream sundae. You're going to get in the car, and we're going to take you, and we're going to chat. Over an ice cream sundae. That sound alright to you? Rose, when are you gonna get used to me? And the six bodyguards that I carry around with me at all times. <laughs> oh boy. So um, this gypsy has a lot of celebrity cameos. 
You want to mention some of them? Yeah. From the top, the, the first line we get is from Tony Shaloub as Uncle Jocko, no, no, no. which is great. Tony winner. Tony Shaloub. He has a to- Tony now. Right. Tony winner, Tony Shaloub from the band's visit. God, who else we got? We got Andrea Martin here as Miss Cratchit. We have Ed Asner as Rose's dad, which is fucking fantastic. We have um, Christine Ebersole as A. Tessie Tora. Michael fucking Jeter's here as Mr. Goldstone. That was a very pleasant surprise. We have Kane Curtis then, as Mr. Kringleine. You know, it, th- this movie was so proficient at casting celebrities. It even casts celebrities before they were celebrities. We have Elizabeth Moss as young Louise. As baby That's Louise. That's nuts. And that is nuts. we have, as baby June, Lacey... Shabert? Shabert? Holy shit, Lacey Shabert is young June? Is young June, and you would know Lacey Shabert because she was Gretchen Wieners in the Mean Girls movie. That's so fucking funny. And she is baby June. You know, she, uh, uh, you know, she also played young Cosette on Broadway. All right, go ahead. Ron Lemez. Oh, well, uh, actually, now that I'm looking it up, uh, she actually played Cosette in, like, 1993. So, like, at the same time as she was filming this. That's fun. Go ahead. With what? You're on Les Mis. I, yeah, I'm always on Les Mis. What's your point? So, you know, we were talking earlier about how people think you're gay. Uh, it might be because I get messages from you that, oh my god, Yonkers is really attractive. Oh, <laughs> okay okay which okay, i agree okay, with okay, you okay 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 i okay, agree no, with you okay. but you are the person okay. that pointed that out unprompted do you see this like ensemble of boys and like objectively yonkers is like the maybe the single hottest person to have ever been in gypsy and you're just like how is this person not tulsa how is how he's just yonkers he is and then i'm assuming distractingly attractive and also i noticed when they were dancing he has the best ass of the group that was you. Hey, you said that one. That was you. I, I did notice that one, but you were the person that pointed out his attractiveness. And who is he? Yeah, but I didn't say anything about his... You brought up his ass. I want to really draw that line in the sand. I'd eat his ass. Is that what you want me to say here? Is that what you're no, prompting not, me Dan. to say? No, it's not, That's the op- opposite direction. <laughs> and I assume you mentioned the lame is because Yonkers is played by Peter Lockyer, who was a very early Marius and lame is in, around the 10th anniversary I'm looking up Peter Lockyer right now. I'm seeing uh, credits as Chris and Miss Saigon, Rodolfo, Understudy and La Boheme, uh, Tor of Phantom of the Opera. I'm seeing uh, Split His Time Between Connecticut and Toronto. Oh, I think God. Peter Lockyer might be oh, the God. perfect man. Oh, I God. think he might be the perfect man. Well, and I did say, I didn't really know his name or anything. He came on the screen I said, that's a young Juju Trudeau, and that's why... We're both attracted to him. Oh, you have a you have a Trudeau crush. Um, Barbara was into the Father Trudeau, and um, Juju I just think is terrific, and I don't want to mm. think about his wife. And I was offended when he brought his wife to Pride because, God damn it, give us a fantasy. <laughs>
Moving on from Yonkers, we're gonna we're gonna go next to the next chorus boy in the line. Actually, that's uh, looking at my list. Jerry, uh, that's what who's. I had to have a cough drop after we got off of the topic of Roz <laughs> Russell, and you're trying to get me to scream again. Okay, fine. I'll save you. I'll save you. But in that case, we should talk about Louise. I don't want to get to Louise yet. Oh, okay. We'll get to it Um, Can I say something that really annoys me overall? They can't decide if they're going to be realistic or if they're going to be an old school Hollywood movie. And all of the issues seem to be really after we think the director got sick. But things like All I Need is the Girl. Randomly, there's a spotlight out in the alley and the cement has glitter. So we have this really really heightened... MGM movie reality rather than actual reality and what also just then actual reality act up fight AIDS you only saw that show this year I'm not editing that out that is shameful it's been a long year no it has literally been you've watched that in the last three months it's been three months since February I could have sworn it's at least been a year and a half. It has been three months since February. You watched Rent three months ago. I remember quite well because I was texting all of my friends, all of your messages, and we were all saying... You were what? When the fuck did we get so old? (laughs) Holy shit. You can't use Rent against me. Now, what was I talking about? Uh, oh well what did i say actual reality so all i need is the girl is this dipsy doodle musical number (laughs) that is not realistic and then we go into the next scene which is the train station and you hear crickets in the background now it is jarring enough that you start a scene with crickets and you end with bet midler belting out everything's coming up roses like you're waking up every last one of those crickets the fact that there are crickets and then you launch into everything's coming up roses is jarring enough but the fact that you go from this heightened reality of all i need is the girl to the absolute nuts and bolts reality of crickets before everything's coming up roses god is that jarring right you know what i'm saying i can understand how that would disarm you it didn't for me but how am I supposed to buy the song when the scene was presented like that? Because it builds. But it didn't build. Those crickets kept going cricket, cricket, cricket. Then boom, Sometimes I had there a there are cricket in locations. Yes, but that has nothing to do with you belting out everything's coming up roses. That has nothing to Whatever. do with a diva entering the pantheon of the Greek gods singing this diva song. Whatever. People don't typically sing Everything's Coming Up Roses in regular reality at train stations. Present company excluded, quite clearly. I understand how you would have been thrown off by it. Just simply didn't. Okay. Another moment that really I found jarring, uh, and it is true for both of the movies. T.T. Grantsinger pays an entire orchestra to play all of the auditions. Yeah, what the hell's that going on? I could even understand three pieces. And here's the thing. When you go to see Gypsy in a theater... But also, it's also a complete set load-in. 
Well, like the train and everything. That's not a tiny thing. Vaudeville. Um, I guess if you're gonna get the act, the act's gonna have to have some kind of set. And I can understand, but to bring the set on for an audition, you wouldn't want to see the full act. Sure. But what I don't buy is that even you could even have three people playing the audition having a whole goddamn orchestra do you know how much those musicians are getting paid even with it being the depression and being the 1920s or whatever do you still know how much those musicians are getting paid and this is this isn't something that we even need to consider when we go to see gypsy in theater in an actual theater because well the orchestra just plays everything it's not nuts and bolts reality, but there's something about when you film a piece, there's a certain level of reality that is brought to the proceedings and that you're adding to the proceedings by adding crickets before everything's coming up roses. And when you add that level of reality, certain things just don't make sense. And so then to even show anyone in the orchestra pit, much less a full orchestra, and both movies show a full goddamn orchestra in that pit, it boggles the mind. Well, movies are fake. And that's my resolution. Alright, so my biggest issue, again... They just don't establish a consistent reality for the movie, which you really need. Any, even if it's a TV movie, you need a consistent reality in and of itself when you make a movie. Um, uh-huh. That's something that didn't go well. But there are a lot of things that really do go well in this production. Would you agree? Oh my god, absolutely. Like, again... This is a gypsy that I would strongly recommend putting in front of people as an introduction. I think it's a good introduction, too. Uh, what are some of the things that you think go right? It, it, it's just shot, mag- it, it's shot magnificently. You know, I have to say, again, third time I saw it, this time was the first time seeing it in HD. God, what a difference uh-huh. that makes. Um, the previous versions I had seen, everything just kind of looked brown until the strip, and Uh then everything looked purple all of a sudden. Seeing it in HD and getting a decent quality picture, none of that was actually what was on that set. There were a lot of colors, a lot of deliberate colors, and used very well. And I also think now is a good time to mention that the costumes were done by... Like, I know you're quizzing me, but this is really your name. You really want to waste this shot on me? Bob Mackey, legendary costume designer. Look up his credits if you don't know them. But they are various and sundry. Did every episode Mm -hmm. of The Carol Burnett Show. Did all of Cher's most iconic looks. Did Funny Lady did Lady Sings the Blues. I could go on and on for hours. Bob Mackey mentioned... There's some great costumes here. I will say flat out, these are the best set of costumes on a whole that we have seen for Gypsy. Bar none. Yeah, I'm not hard-pressed to disagree. And the interesting thing is he has talked about in interviews how he found the budget he was given for this production of Gypsy unacceptable. And he had to call him favors, and he had to get very creative because of how small his budget was here. And honestly, you can't tell. 
Those costumes yeah, look like no, a million dollars. Yeah. Just excellent work by Bob Mackey. Um, the costumes are fantastic. You know, some of the sets seem a little multi-purpose, but the sets overall... Yes, especially when we get... I don't know if it really was, but it at least seemed to me. Mr. Weber's theater looked exactly the same as the House of Burlesque. And God, am I glad that I can go back to calling it the House of Burlesque now. It did look like the same space, although the set decoration for each was completely different. And I think set decoration is an odd thing to talk about, but I think they did an excellent job with set decoration. Um, It gave the eye something to look at without ever being distracting. And the set decoration was colorful in a way that was complementary to the costumes and Uh to the overall set complimentary and not distracting yeah they're they really are just exquisite no it it looks fantastic the entire time and then i just have to say especially I, i have no issues whatsoever with this gypsy for really about the first 40 minutes yeah it it's you know not to use the word lightly but I'd say ultimately flawless for that first huge chunk. Really flawless. And and the problem it has is that it just sort of loses its steam, I suppose. It lo- like, that's really what the best thing I would attribute it to. It loses its steam. It becomes a little, again, it's not a pun, but it does become directionless. Yeah. She becomes directionless and it becomes directionless. But at that point, what you're looking at is an unfinished product. So what can you review? Well, you can review impulses. All of the impulses are correct. Yes. Other things we liked. Did you like Louise? Here's the interesting thing. I liked her as Gypsy. I don't think she was the most effective Louise. But as soon as she became Gypsy, I thought she was very strong. I thought she was very sweet for the most part, especially in Act 1. I was unenthused with her little lamb i just the the way that she pronounced little grinded every nerve in my body what way did she pronounce it la lamb la lamb oh okay your birthday is here at i la. didn't notice it but yeah la lamb la lamb i have to say one area where the movie eclipses the tv movie this lamb is not as attractive as the lamb in the Roz Russell movie. Yeah, and it's a shame, you know, because you have such a solid visual bit with the introduction, as I mentioned before, but it's just, you're just, you just don't have a very attractive lamb. It, it looks like an know, old lamb. It's what, it's, it, it, you, you fall short of perfection with that, it, you know? It looked like, like an old lamb and it did not look like a little lamb. It's disheartening. I don't know if that lamb was prime. so close to right. <laughs> This thing could have been perfect, but the lamb. What I found interesting about her gypsy specifically. Yeah. Her gypsy took on mannerisms and speech patterns and singing patterns of Bette Midler. I don't uh-huh. know if you noticed. Where, where were they most prominent for you? Uh, there was some dipping. 
vocal dipping. Yeah, yeah, that was something that Bette Midler set up pretty prominently in the show. Bette Midler definitely did throughout the show. And there was a... God, I don't remember the specific line right now. But there's a bit where she's talking to the audience. It's very reminiscent. Not necessarily of something that Bette Midler had done in this show, but it's reminiscent of seeing Bette Midler in concert. You can see it through line. Seeing Bette Midler in concert in the 70s and doing her whole Sophie Tucker bit. Seemed very reminiscent. Tell me more about that. (laughs) Kind of just the whole, yeah. Not Mae West, but Mae West-ish sexual everything sounds like a dirty innuendo and then just the overall pacing that cynthia gibb had in delivering some of those jokes felt very bet midlerish to me and it uh-huh. seems to indicate that rose has been coaching louise at being a better stripper which makes also huh. look at that dame's walk she would have made one hell of a stripper Maybe that's why that line is there. And also, trying out a few ideas for the act. It, there is a huge jump. We see Louise not be right. very good at her first strip thing. Very first, let me entertain you. And also, what I found interesting here is this Louise ends that first let me entertain you confident enough that they probably kept her another night and she figured things out. A lot of Louise's end that first let me entertain you, and by the end, they're still pretty pathetic. And you just wonder, how did they not get fired right on the spot? Yeah. But you realize that you don't go from the House of Burlesque in Wichita to Minsky's boom, boom. In one leap. Yeah. There's about a year or so, at least, in between the two places. And that entire year... Rose has been working as the manager, as the person that has all the ideas for the act, and has been pushing Louise, I don't know, to be more sexual. That's a whole layer of psychosis to uncover. I have two things to say about the strips. Mm-hmm. Number one, did you notice that they weren't all females at Minsky's? No. They're not all females at, Mi- at Minsky's. Really? Yep. The very beginning before Gypsy comes out, give it a watch. Um, that's the first thing. Second thing, not only is this the rowdiest crowd that we've ever gotten in like a first in the first strip, like they're outright like, you know, jeering at her. She does her she says her first words, Hello, my name is Gypsy Rose Lee. What's yours? And two separate people say Bernie. That stood out to me so prominently, and I think it's worth mentioning on this podcast. You've never met a Bernie who went to a strip club? You know, everyone knows not that specific criteria, no. Everyone knows that Bernies go to strip clubs. Everyone knows this? Everyone knows this. Yeah, but I'll really agree with you. I thought it was a fine, sweet Louise who sort of, like, you know, fluctuated throughout the show but really really knocked it out of the park as gypsy Mm -hmm. hey dan yeah i'm gonna say two words to you and you say the first thing that comes to your mind Mm -hmm. okay Mm -hmm. bet midler dolly will never go away again yeah fair enough makes sense now i'm gonna say four words to you and then you tell me the first words that come to your head Uh uh-huh bet midler in gypsy 
there's a slew of words that come to mind. I don't know if we can nail it. Give down. me all of them. Give me all of them. To start off with, this is the best she sounded in her career. Yeah. This is the well. First, let me ask you: How familiar were you with Bette Midler when we watched this? I was rather familiar with her as a performer. I I knew of her legendary status, you know, in Hocus Pocus especially. That was like a very very big. Oh, so you had seen Hocus Pocus pop culture around my. I never had said that. I never had said that to you. I never had said I'd seen Hocus Pocus. Um, oh. But I know greatly of her, you know, immense popularity through films such as Hocus Pocus, through pieces of theater, such as, you know, her Tony Award winning role as Dolly Levi in the Hello Dolly revival. I She's she's a legendary performer. There's the lovely story of her being almost cast in Jesus Christ Superstar, but then rejected at the last minute because director Tom O'Horgan, quote, didn't like people who looked like they bathed. Mm-hmm. A legendary performer, and I was very, very well aware of the magnitude of her status before this. So you were aware that she had a legendary name. Um, what had you experienced before? Well, it's funny you should ask that. It's really funny, and I'll tell you why it's funny, Dan. Funny? It's so funny. You're a stranger. This is the first performance I've seen of hers, and I'd really like it if you didn't get mad at me for that. So you hadn't so much as watched a clip of her singing a song on YouTube? Actually, yeah, I'd seen her Roses turn before. I'd, I watched that a bit back down the line. I'd, I'd probably seen her perform in pieces and bits and compilations and songs without it like sticking in my memory. But this is the first time I've watched a top-to-bottom Bette Midler performance. You had never seen Bette Midler before in any substantive way. In any substantive way, no. So this is the best that Bette Midler has sounded in her career. I guess I'm the only person here that can speak on any authority to that fact. (laughs) The interesting thing here, I had heard there was a DVD released at one point that had an audio commentary. I had never had a handle on that DVD. It went out of stock pretty quickly. They mentioned in the audio commentary for each of her big scenes, they filmed three different versions. Um, One where there is like an intimacy, one where there is a medium bigness and one where she goes for broke. You can definitely tell by Rose's turn, they chose the biggest take. Yeah. She's playing probably to a 4,000 seat house in Rose's turn. But I think for a 4,000 seat house, that's a good performance. The issue is, of course, the camera is the camera and this is for TV. But she's not the director and the director was unwell. And so if these are her impulses, these are the right impulses. I really do wish she had played the role, at least in some very limited capacity, in front of audiences on stage. Because I bet you the performance she would have given, even after so much as five performances, would be very different than the performance she ended up giving in the movie. If if Gypsy had not been given a Broadway revival with Tyne Daly... 
and had instead done some kind of New York City Center encores engagement in the 90s, Bette Midler should have and probably would have been Rose. Well, even something like she just goes and does it for a summer stock in a summer stock or like LA reprise or something. She goes and does it for a week in summer stock because she knows that this TV movie is coming up. I think we would have ended up with a very different rose than what we got. Yeah. Just probably. getting audience reaction to what you're doing. She nails the comedy. That is not in question. Totally. She knows comedy. She has the one moment where she just goes, get the costumes get the set that that moment killed me Uh, there's so many laugh lines and there's so many um expected laugh lines that she achieves unexpectedly which is really refreshing very refreshing she gets all the comedy which not all roses get and she gets the dramatic moments the issue is they don't always match the two performances she's giving or the performance she's giving from scene to scene to scene all of those threads aren't tied together a hundred percent. And she does, uh-huh. I think she does as much as she possibly could with the role. Absolutely. Knowing the conditions, and, and, and... I think she does everything she could have done. I think she's really admirable in the role. I'm glad we have this and I'm glad we have her in this. I really don't think that this is a subpar take on this character at all. I think this is sincerely an excellent performance and it's not the best that she could have possibly given. And even that is above the standards of some of the roses we've seen. Right. No, very high standard. It is not in any way subpar. It's just unfinished. Holy shit. That's the Gypsy movies. Those are the Gypsy movies. One that is El Flapo and one that is pretty terrific. Pretty damn terrific. I I, I think this honestly will be the gypsy I watch together with people if they're seeing it for the first time, you know, before giving them this kind of shaky bootleg quality. (laughs) You know, I think, I think you probably a one, two punch bet Patty. Well, you know, these aren't the only two pro shot gypsies. There's also, um, don't, don't, don't the matter of, No, 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 no. Dan, Dan. Dan we have more know. episodes. No. But, but it, I, it doesn't have to come to, to that. It doesn't. Uh, it kind of does. I don't know why I'm putting on these airs because you're the one who has the big apprehension, but like you, it's still the fear <laughs> of God in me about this video. Hey everybody, tomorrow, I, I have nothing to say, but we'll certainly find many words on our next episode with... Everybody's favorite Harry Potter actor. Tune in to tomorrow's episode where we watch the pro shot of the 2015 West End revival of Gypsy starring Imelda Staunton. Bye, kids. Close your eyes, plug your nose, and plunge into the deep with us. See you tomorrow. The Unauthorized Critic Circle podcast is unauthorized. The podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Gypsy! And all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyright of the respective trademark and copyright holders. The Unauthorized Critic Circle cannot help the listener locate or distribute recordings discussed herein.